them as well. Our gracious Father, how profound it is to realize that your love has been manifested to us through Jesus Christ. How we thank you, O Father, for the greatness of love that is shown to us in our precious Savior. We thank you, Father, also for the evidence of the love that we sense within this church family. We thank you for so many who express that love in wonderfully practical ways, and particularly to my own family uh, these recent months. Uh, and we thank you, Father, also for uh, the generosity of spirit that we sense uh, goes on among each other. And Father, our prayer this morning is that as Michael and Amber Schwamm are blessed, we're so blessed to have them with us, Lord. We pray for this opportunity they have to minister to our children. We pray that there might be a seed planted in the hearts of these children that would grow into a lifelong passion for the glory of your great name among all the peoples of this world. And we pray, Father, that you would accomplish your purposes even among us today as we look into your word. Help, we pray, Lord, to us to overcome the weakness of our body, body and our weariness of spirit at times. Help us, Lord, by your spirit to have ears to hear, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Whenever Christians celebrate and make much of the gospel of grace, whenever we proclaim the gospel and the good news to other people, there's always a concern that some people in hearing about God's unmerited favor shown to sinners like us, that they're going to reach the wrong conclusion. That if guilty sinners receive full forgiveness through faith, alone, in Christ alone, and that through our belief in Christ's atoning work on the cross, and therefore we don't have to pay anything to God for this forgiveness, and that we don't have to perform a long list of deeds to God in order to enjoy that new status with Him, then some people wrongfully may infer that it makes no difference how we live. That if we truly are dealt with that kind of grace, that kind of unmerited favor, no matter who we are, and we don't have to offer all these things to God, then some people look at that and say, well, since Jesus paid the penalty of our sins, and he also kept the law for us, some say, well, they insist there's nothing wrong with indulging our sinful flesh. And some will no doubt say, why live by rules and regulations? Why not live a life of freedom and do anything you want? Now, hear me out. This kind of erroneous thinking is addressed twice in the pages of Scripture, in the New Testament. That's how we know this is a, a potential problem with the gospel of grace, because the writers of Scripture anticipated this is the way that people will interpret that message. One whole chapter is given into in Romans 6. We won't take time to go on that today, but we've been looking at Galatians chapter 5. So if you've got your Bible, please find your way to Galatians chapter 5 again. Because we want to look and notice things we've been gleaning from this chapter is that one important factor that's often overlooked by those who would advocate a life licentious or absolutely completely free way of living that mostly indulges the flesh that kind of lifestyle in view of the gospel of grace, they forget 
that the gospel talks about and includes the radical heart change of everyone who has undergone regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Rather than indulging the flesh, the gospel of grace calls us to respond to God's love and to serve one another through biblical love. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, page 1388 in your pew Bible, notice he says in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And as he continues on the text, he makes it clear in explaining, well, well, what is it about this love? How do we know what this kind of biblical love is like? What do we mean by, I call it biblical love, which is another word, is another way of describing the fact that uh, the New Testament writers sort of coined a new word and used the word agape, uh, which we use for the idea of biblical love. What does that mean? Well, you'll notice in your text right there in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, we know that this kind of love, it summarizes the duty we're to have. We're to love God, yes, he says in, in Matthew 22, but we're also to love our neighbor as ourselves. We love our neighbors to the same extent to which we already love ourselves. We take care of ourselves, we do things for ourselves, then we should at least do that, that same measure of devotion to other people. And as we continue reading through Galatians 5, we notice here, beginning in verse 19, that self-centered love, or love that is focused primarily on oneself, is displayed in patterns that oftentimes involve immorality, idolatry, strife, outbursts of anger, envying, drunkenness, and out-of-control behavior. And how does the gospel of grace then transform self-loving, self-serving people like you and me into serving people around us through love? How does that work out? What does that look like? Well, the answer, I believe, is not by keeping a long list of rules. Let's be clear about that. The answer is not to say, well, we just have to try harder to keep the rules and just do the things we're supposed to do. No, it doesn't emphasize that here in the text at all. But I would suggest to you, the text is emphasizing here in Galatians 5, we need to surrender to the leading and the influence of the Spirit of God who indwells every regenerated believer. Look at verse 16 of Galatians 5. But I say, walk or live by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. See, it's the fact that the Spirit is the important influencer here in learning to live a life of love. And external rules and external laws will never motivate us to resist our selfish inclinations that come from our flesh. But the Holy Spirit is able to produce the fruit of a changed character. And so he imparts new ways of thinking, new desires, and new motivations, and new ambitions. It all comes from the influence of the Holy Spirit who is taking up residence within us. And so in my sermon this morning, I want us to spend some time just reflecting on two things. The first is I want us to reflect between the differences between the works of the flesh, which we looked at last week, and the fruit of the Spirit. There are massive differences between those two. We'll make a couple of observations and reflections on that. 
And then I want us to reflect and focus on the preeminent character trait of spiritual fruit the Holy Spirit is produced in the children of God, and that is biblical love, or what I call agape love. So if you have your Bible, let's look then at what we're talking about here. We'll begin reading now in verse 19 of chapter 5 of Galatians. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now notice that Paul did not contrast works of the flesh with works of the Spirit. Did you notice that? In that text of Scripture, Paul deliberately draws attention to the outward difference, or the outward evidence of the Spirit's work in a person's life, and he emphasized the word fruit not works. Now again, this is under point number one, reflections on the differences between works and fruit. Fruit, I would argue, is something that is indelibly connected to something that's alive. It is an organic process of a living plant to produce fruit. That's what the, fruit, that's what the plant is designed to do, and if there's life in the plant, the plant endeavors to try to multiply to grow and to produce this fruit. Now, if you drive out east in the warmer months, hopefully soon, let's say this summer, and you go in the North Fork, and you will see some very beautiful vineyards uh, on both sides of the road there as you travel out and look at all of these incredible acres and acres of vines bearing the fruit of grapes. Now, those grapes, as you go later in the season... The grapes that you find out in the fields, I assure you, are not artificially glued onto those vines. What you see there is you see biologically produced fruit, that is, these grapes, that are in keeping with the reproductive processes going on within those various grape vines. Now, in the same way, I would argue that every Christian who is indwelt by the Spirit of God, will have the Spirit's fruit organically, if you will, produced in our lives. Because I'm saying here, point number A, is spiritual fruit is or the organic result of the Spirit's work. See, the gospel of grace not only provides forgiveness in terms of our standing before God, but it also transforms our hearts. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the life-giving, life-transforming influence and effect of the Spirit of God within a true believer. Now let's back up and make sure you hear me say this point in the second point under this first main point. The transformation by the Spirit is not an instantaneous transformation. 
The full manifestation of the fruit of Christ's likeness takes time. And so that's why I've said, secondly, in your notes there, that the spiritual fruit is a gradual result of the Spirit's work. Just as fruit gradually grows on a vine there in those acres and acres of vineyards, so the fruit of the Spirit gradually grows in the life of a believer. And I'd like to suggest one illustration of this is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, in which Paul thinks back to his experience with the Thessalonian believers, and he commends them. He says, I want you to know that I commend you for being a loving people. But he doesn't just stop there, because he sees that even in the expressions of love he's already seen, he knows there's much more that they can further grow in that area. Here's, I'm going to read now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. As to the love of the brethren, Paul says, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. He's commending them. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But then he says this, but I urge you, brethren, to excel still more. What's he saying? He says you can still grow in this learning to live out love in the community and in fellowship with other believers. And so I would just like to remind all of us that every Christian should expect gradual growth in the fruit of the Spirit over time. Some of us are able to look back and we can see the progress in our own character. We can see how a while ago, maybe years ago, we used to react a certain way. And we've seen how the Holy Spirit, over time, can help us learn to not follow that pattern, to adopt another way of responding, another way of reacting in situations. And we see the the change. And we've seen certainly a lot of other people in our church family, they've come to Christ and we see them making some changes. And then we see further changes. Over time, you look back and realize that person's not the way they used to be. You see the evidence of of a clear work of the Spirit that gradually takes place over time, as the ongoing work of the Spirit continues. Certainly we see it as parents, don't we? At least we hope to. By the time they grow up and are ready to move on, and and hopefully they do move on, and they do go and have a life of their own, and leave and cleave someday if possible, the whole point here is what? We see their own, we pray for our children to see them grow in those areas, and we want to see that gradual growth. We don't expect them to mature in three days. From the age of four, you're going to say, okay, we're going to look for all those qualities. No, we wait and see those things developed over time. Same thing true in the spiritual realm. Now, one more thought I'd like to offer under this heading of the first, the differences between work and spirit, work and and the fruit. Notice, if you will, that works of the flesh and fruit of the spirit, that works is plural. Fruit can be understood as singular, that is, Fruit includes all of those character traits. Works, if you remember from last week, as he listed all the works of the flesh, he said, and there are other things similar to that. That's not a complete list. Now, what's my point here? Well, most of us clearly do not evidence all the works of the flesh, and for that, we are thankful. But all of the fruit of the Spirit, all of these attributes, all of these character traits are to be present in the character traits of a true believer. And that's why I say in letter C, fruit is an inclusive result of the Spirit's work. That is, 
all of the works, all of the fruit of the Spirit are to be evident in our lives. Not just one or two. We're not to assume that due to our personality or due to our upbringing, some of us are exempt from developing the character traits of gentleness, let's say, or faithfulness. Let's say some of us came up in a home in which our parental um, models may have been people who fudged on the truth quite a bit. Maybe our father or maybe our mother may have said, well, they abandoned their vows that they made to their spouse. They left the family at some point and abandoned the, the, uh, their spouse. And uh, they lived a life in which they clearly have, have uh, been known not to be people who tell the truth. Now, does that mean that we, therefore, if we're inclined to be similar to that kind of modeling we saw growing up, does that mean that, therefore, we're not expected, once we become a believer, to see the influence of the Spirit of God not make us into people who are faithful? And clearly the idea is what? No, the Spirit of God wants to inculcate all of those character traits within us because that is the fruit of the Spirit. Not just one or two character traits, all of them. Even if your personality is such that you're a person who uh, you say, well, I can do maybe two or three of them, but I'm not sure about four or five of them there. The point is keep being patient and trusting that the Lord, by his grace, through the Spirit of God, will continue his work in you. All the character qualities listed there serve as the outward indicator that we truly are believers that we have been saved. Now, let me just end this point here by saying a word of encouragement. The gospel of grace provides spiritual transforming power which produces character qualities of Christ-likeness over time. Let's never forget the wonderful assurance that we receive in Philippians chapter 1. He who began a good work in you will complete that work. He, will, he started it. He's going to complete it. You say, oh, I have so far to go in all these character Yes, we all can identify with that. But know that God will not finish. He's not finished with you. He's determined to keep working. I think of like a sculptor, for example. If you have a famous, very talented sculptor, and he has before him a massive piece of marble, a big block, and it's a rectangular block. It's taller than it is wide, so it's, and it's about, let's say, seven feet tall. And his goal, as a sculptor, is to create a life-size um, statue of a human person. He wants to actually create, let's say, my statue, okay? So he's going to start, and he's going to take a chisel, and he's going to start chiseling away at the top of that marble slab. And let's say he works, just, would we think that he's going to be done just by chiseling the first foot and a half? Suppose he knocks out the corners. Suppose we actually start seeing a head appear that resembles a nice shape like this. And so, you know, he gets the head form and he gets down to the neck. You suppose the sculptor's going to say, okay, I'm finished. No. If he's going to do a life-size one, he will what? He will keep at it. He will keep on going till there's a torso, till there's arms, till there are legs, till there are feet that are finished all the way down the bottom. And then you will see, he says, this is a life-size statue completed. I've begun at the top, but I'm going to get all the way down till it's finished. And that's what God has promised for every believer. He is determined to keep working in your heart and life. He's not finished with you. And God's Spirit 
is committed to chiseling your character in all of these areas, all these qualities of Christ-like character, so that they will be evident in your life. That's a good thing. That's not a burdensome thing. That's a wonderful reality of the gospel that comes to us, the gospel of grace. Let's be encouraged. God's at work in you. Now, another thing I'd like to suggest as we move forward here is that we get a little zeroed in now. That's just a general, like laying the foundation or the framework of understanding the fruit of the Spirit. I'd like us now to spend a few moments just reflecting on the preeminent character trait of spiritual fruit, and that clearly is biblical love. Biblical love. I'll start off with a question when we look at this list of all of these attributes. Do you really think it's a coincidence? I mean, it just happens to be that love comes first on the list of all of these character traits as a fruit of the Spirit. I mean, do you think that just happens to be the way it is? I don't think so. Because if you know your Bible, 1 Corinthians 13 assures us that what? Love is the greatest. Love is the greatest of all Christian virtues. It is possible, now watch this now, it's possible to be a very self-controlled person. That is, you're very disciplined. You can be very disciplined, and you can have a serious deficit of love for people around you. Have you ever been around someone like that? They're extremely prompt. They're never late for anything. And they are very organized. But boy, can they be annoyed with people who get in their way, who hinder them from getting to where they want to be and getting things done the way they want to do and get them checked off their list. And a person who is extremely disciplined can be what? Extremely annoying, right? If they don't have love. And so the point here is that you can have self-control, but that self-control could be motivated by what? Having control over everything around you or be motivated by a desire to have your way carried out all the time, or to be what? To be impressive to other people that they see, oh, look how disciplined this guy, look how much he gets accomplished. And he's actually trying to gain the respect and praise of other people. And that's why I listed in your notes there a very helpful quote by uh, Lenski. He said, a helpful assessment in the fundamental importance of love is he calls love the most essential product of faith the mother of all Christian virtues. I love that. Love is the mother of all Christian virtues. That if we have love, then we'll oftentimes see these other virtues come into being in their rightful place and their rightful ways of fitting together. But if you don't have love, then you're missing it altogether. Now turn your Bible to 1 John chapter 4, which we've talked already this morning with our memory verse about this theme of love. I want us to understand a couple of dimensions about love, biblical love. 1 John chapter 4, page 1449 in your pew Bible. I'm going to suggest to you that biblical love is rooted in God's nature. That when we're talking about the love that the Bible talks about, we're talking about a love that is built upon or understood to be it in operation in God himself. Now we know this because the Bible says that God in his essence is love, 1 John 4, 8. That doesn't mean that's all that defines God. 
God also is just. God also is holy. There are other things we know that are true about God, but we know that God is love. That is his nature. And therefore we know that love is preeminent among the fruit of the Spirit because that's the essence of God. If we are born of God and we know God, then we will love other people and we'll love God in the way in which somehow unbelievers are not able to do that. There's something unique about the fact that if we truly are a believer and born of God, we're going to begin to imitate God in ways that unbelievers can't and don't. And here's the reason why. Because in, believe, in, in imitating our Father, we're merely responding as the children of God to the initiating love that God has already shown us in the gospel. God has already displayed to us an amazing display of his, his biblical love toward us that causes us to respond back to him. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Look at the way this is clearly lived out, uh, explained. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, and I'd back up and I'd like to translate that differently. Beloved, since God, if there means, if this is true and it's true, therefore you could say, Beloved, since God has loved us, so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now I want to talk about what does it mean to love one another and how do we live that out? What, what, what do we mean by that? What does biblical love look like? And I'd like to take a few moments and think about several dimensions of this kind of biblical love and offer some practical suggestions regarding how it looks as a fruit of the Spirit. First thing I'd like to suggest about God's love, it involves sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving. And he says so right there in 1 John 4.10. At great cost to himself, God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, God's love prompted him then to offer his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the sinless one, to offer himself as a sacrifice before the Holy Father. And in so doing, he is offering to appease or satisfy the just demands that God has to, to be a God who makes sure he, that every sin is punished, he offers that for our sins, for us, for those of us who deserve to receive the compensation for our, our sins and rebellion against God. It is Jesus who bears that for us. He's a, sin, he's a satisfying sacrifice offered to God. That's what propitiation means. And Jesus did not serve his own interests in offering himself as a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. He suffered the punishment we deserve so that God might remain just as a just God, but also at the same time he can be a justifier of sinners who deserve to be condemned. And so Paul, as he meditated upon these truths, that Jesus would do this for him and indicate such a sacrifice offered for his benefit. When he thought about it in Galatians 2.20, Paul wrote what? The Son of God loved me? And gave himself up for me on my behalf. He became that sacrifice for me. The sinless one doing that for me, the guilty one. See, this kind of biblical agape love God demonstrates in the gospel, it's always selfless, it's always sacrificial. It costs. It costs dearly. 
In laying down one's life, Jesus said in John 15, 13, I lay down my life for the sheep, he says. 1 John 3, 16 helps us see the connection between this kind of love that Jesus had, the biblical kind of love, with the fruit of the Spirit. He says this, we know love by this, 1 John 3, 16, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, do you see how this leads us naturally into what Paul was saying in Galatians chapter 5? Instead of seeing ourselves moving in the direction of indulging the sins of the flesh, living for myself, he says we ought to serve one another through love. And that's what love does. It serves, it sacrifices, it, is, it takes on the concern of others and not just our own. And therefore, it requires a sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of energy, a sacrifice that oftentimes means I'm going to offer assistance and give a help when there's a need. And I might just say this in terms of practical things. As I've meditated on this this week, I can't help but say I've been so impressed with the number of people who have demonstrated this kind of selfless love in the last several weeks in helping our dear sister Dale move out of from one place into another. Because that involves a lot of help in coming alongside a person who can't do this all by themselves. Nobody can do this all by themselves. Not within a certain time frame we had to work in. But a number of people offered to say, I'm going to stop what I normally do. I'm going to get involved in this. I'm going to give my time. I'm going to be there. I'm going to try to help this person work through these changes and help them distribute. And all of the efforts that went into that were sacrificial. They were giving of themselves to help somebody else's concern and help them accomplish what they needed at the moment. It required time. It required thought. It required patience. It required uh, lots of discussions, lots of uh, carting things around. It's amazing what kind of practical expressions. I think of another one that always comes to my mind. It's such an excellent model for me was our dear brother, John Marquis. How many of you remember John Marquis? Many of you still do. He was an elderly gentleman. I remember the first time I ever saw him, I believe. He was standing on a, a ladder over at Parsons B painting something, or else he was on the, I think he was maybe on the steeple. I don't know. He was all over this building. He was in his 80s. I was just in fear and trembling, like, get down, please, before you get hurt. Very strong man. Anyway, his wife uh, was being cared for in a local uh, home here, uh, had Alzheimer's rather severely. And I remember going with him one time in which he went to go visit his wife, which he did on a regular basis every day. And he would drive over, he drove over with him, and uh, he came in there and he sat down and here was his wife in a wheelchair. She slumped over. She hardly even has eye contact with him. And very tenderly and affectionately, he starts speaking to her in such dear ways. And she doesn't say a word to him, doesn't know him from Adam. And he is kindly just keeps repeating her names. Here, I've got you something. I brought you something, dear. And he takes out of his little paper bag a little pint of ice cream. Takes the lid off, takes the spoon he brought with him, and gently, lovingly feeds her the ice cream. She doesn't say thank you. She doesn't say, oh, this is delicious. She doesn't say anything. She still doesn't even know him. It was selflessness. He knows that she loves ice cream. And she has nothing to offer him. She has nothing to give him at this stage in her life. But his expression of sacrificial, selfless love says, 
this is a gift that I can give you. I can't give you a lot right now, but how about a little ice cream? It's a beautiful, beautiful model for me, and I've never forgotten it, and I don't think I ever will. There are many other ways in which God can help us, but surely there's some way we can find to give of ourselves to help somebody else. Another element of agape love is that it has as its goal the greatest good of another person. I think, unfortunately, in our culture today, too many people think that love means I'll give my kids everything they want. My friend, let me assure you right now, that will not only bankrupt you, but that will ruin your kids because that's not the best thing for them. I think I talked about that last week. Anyway, I don't want to be a repeating person here. Uh, um, Agape love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, does not seek its own. It is we don't always want to get our own way. It's not just about me. Biblical love doesn't content itself with just trying to serve other people by giving them what they want. No, what we want to do here with biblical love is motivated to not just give them what they want. It gives them what they need. Big difference. Biblical love says, I'm not just going to give you what you think you want. I'm going to give you what you need. Now you say, Now, that's a big difference. Yes, it is. But God's agape love includes not only selfless, sacrificial service, but it also includes discipline, chastisement. I get this right out of Scripture, Hebrews 13, page 1431 in your pew Bible, where we read, verse 6, Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. Now, see, that's, that's not... That's not the way a lot of us think. You say, Lord, if you love me, you wouldn't. Uh -uh, Wait a minute. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And then if you read further in the text, verse 10, he says, God disciplines us, the children of God, for our good. In what way? How's that going to help us? So that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Isn't that true? but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So I would like to suggest this. Biblical love corrects. Biblical love rebukes. Biblical love reproves. Biblical love exhorts. Biblical love will even chastise when appropriate and when needed. And the goal of such actions is to help the one that we love make progress toward the goal of maturity in Christ. And I would suggest to you it's not loving to ignore sin in a brother or sister in Christ. And that's why as a church we demonstrate biblical love to each other as a part of a church family in church discipline. Not so that we can just get rid of people who are annoying, but because we want to see it as an expression of agape, biblical love. It's designed to gain our brother, to win our brother, to make sure that he is with us in following Christ and repenting of sin and following Christ in ways that are in keeping with the gospel. Matthew 18. All right, let me move to another one here. Another important component of true biblical love is that it is rooted in a caring, concerned heart. A caring, concerned heart. Sometimes when we offer actions of love, we can sometimes fall into this dangerous situation of doing it out of duty. 
doing what we do because we're obligated to do it. Well, I have to do this. And we do it out of a heart, rather, a true biblical love is going to be a heart that is, is deeply cherishing the one for whom the sacrifice is being made. If you look at 1 Peter, Paul, I mean, sorry, Peter urges the believers there to respond to Christ's love by fervently loving one another from the heart. And then he says later in verse, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, he says, keep fervent in your love for one another. What's he saying? Don't just get caught up in doing what you ought to be doing and doing it out of duty, but make sure that your heart truly does deeply cherish and care about the people you're called to serve. You see, agape love is not just a cold-hearted obligation to do what you think is best for others. It is earnestly having a deep affection for the good of that other person and to therefore see yourself emphasizing, I'm going to give you the maximum of my energy and my desire and my willingness to help you in this situation. I think this is illustrated very clearly, and if you turn your page back, uh, page or two there, if you're in Galatians still, to chapter 4 in Galatians. See, Paul is speaking to them. In some ways, he's rebuking them. He's exhorting them. But boy, can you sense Paul's heart. It is heavy. His heart is aching over these dearly beloved members of the Galatian churches. And listen to what he says in 419. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Do you hear his heart aching for these people? He's not just rattling off a bunch of words to get him to get in shape and get yourself together. No, his deep concern. He feels in deep, tense, intense pain longing for them to stop following these false teachers and to stop giving heed to all this false doctrine. Now, I would just suggest to you, my friends, that caring about other people from your heart, leading you to get involved in their lives on some level, sacrificing your time or your energies or your efforts for them, my friend, it's going to cause you great pain because to love people oftentimes will be painful for us. People will disappoint us. People will respond in an uncaring way sometimes. People will walk away from you. People will abandon you. People will misunderstand you. All these kind of things happen. But that doesn't change the fact that agape love has a sympathetic component to it. From the heart. It has to be from the heart. I would say, again, the premier fruit of the Spirit, this kind of biblical love, it's not optional. It's very clear in Scripture. This is what God is calling us to do. And we would be expected and see it as a necessary outgrowth of the Spirit's work in our hearts of any believer. And here I'd like to conclude now with two thoughts here real quickly. Ephesians 5 is a very helpful way of seeing this connect together. The dynamic of the gospel of grace is this, Ephesians 5.2. We read there that we are to be imitators of God. Now, there's many ways we can't imitate God, but there is one particular way we can imitate on God on some level. He says, as dearly loved children of God, that is, since God has already adopted us as his enemies, he's forgiven us and adopted us as his children, and we've received that incredible love that bore our punishment on his son, Jesus Christ, 
and we've been given all of Christ's righteousness onto our account. He says, be imitators of this God as children loved by God and walk in love, live in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Do you hear the gospel in that verse? It's just saturated with the gospel of grace. A love that bore your sins, that got involved in your mess so that you might be forgiven. He says that kind of love is to draw you to respond similarly to other people. And we respond to God's love by loving those around us. And that means sometimes we have to absorb their wrongdoing by forgiving them. Not extracting justice out of them, but indicating there's nothing you can do to make that right, but I will give you the gift of saying I will never hold that against you again as you come and repent of that sin to me. Jesus' disciples are identified, Jesus says, not as people who know a lot of theology, you can't pinpoint a Christian and pick him out of a crowd and say, well, I know that guy's a Christian because I know he goes to church every week and he hardly ever misses. Nope. Jesus did not say that I'll, they'll know you're a Christian if you're a person who is a disciplined Bible reader and you do your reading every day and you read and make your progress and you do your daily bread every day. No, that's not what sets you apart as a believer, making it clear. What does he say in John thirteen thirty five? By this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you biblically love one another. May God help us. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we seek you. We cry out to you, thanking you for the greatness of your love in Christ. Thanking you, Lord, that there is hope for every sinner in the gospel of Christ. For every person who struggles to love their neighbor, we thank you that, Lord Jesus, you loved perfectly all people. We thank you that it is your, you are our hope of seeing anybody love. We, we love in, no one unless until we first have been loved by you. We thank you, Father, that... Lord Jesus, there is hope for everybody here that your love for us meant that you gave yourself for us, became, becoming our propitiation. Father, I pray that your love will, again, bring us to the point where we're humbled, where we are truly overwhelmed by the greatness of your love, where you help us, Lord, to see the appropriateness of surrendering to the Spirit, what he prompts us to do as the Spirit points us to our precious Savior who sacrificed himself, who had deep longings and affections in his heart, and who did what was best for us. Oh, Father, I pray that by your Spirit, you would produce increasingly and over time more evidence of the love we have for you and how we deal with those around us. And so, Father, may you encourage and promote a sense of love and communion among the members of this church, particularly as we celebrate our unity around the table of our precious Lord and Savior. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.